so we are, um, for, for just to put this in context, for um, a, a, around about mm, five months ago, maybe six months ago, um, I was um, thinking about the book of Revelation, which I'm sure many of you have read bits of it, or hopefully read it through. You may have heard some sermons. You may have read some good bits in it. The book of Revelation is complicated, it's exciting, it's scary, it's challenging, it's difficult, it's mystical, all sorts of things about it, but there's some really, really wonderful things in it, and uh, a few months ago, about five, six months ago, I really felt like God was saying to, to use the letters to the churches of Ephesians, the fir- uh, to the churches uh, written by Jesus in Revelation, and that we're going to go through them all, and um, and then a few months ago, I was in a meeting where uh, a guy was speaking, and uh, he, he was just going to start reading a bit of Revelation, and he started reading the letters to the churches, and he, d- and he just didn't stop, and he kept reading it. It was really powerful, hearing it all the way through. And I'd encourage you, actually, there's, some, there's something really powerful about hearing the Bible being read aloud. Um, hopefully, you all read, or have, you, know, you read the Bible regularly, or you have an app to help you get through the Bible. But it is really brilliant to hear the Bible being read aloud. And there's all sorts of apps that can help you do that. I mean, you can go on YouTube and get and hear David, David Suchet, is that his name? Yeah, um, Poirot reading it. I mean, he's a, he's a Christian and he's basically recorded the whole Bible. You can buy it, but actually it's basically all, all on YouTube now. And you can go and hear his beautiful voice um, for free. And there's something alive when you hear someone who reads it well. I mean, it's great. We've got some great readers here who read it out loud. And when you hear someone reading scripture, kind of, in many ways, as it was intended to be heard. I mean, lots of the letters were written as letters which would have been read in public. And so they kind of have that, that personal, powerful tone when, when you hear them audibly. So I'd encourage you to do that. And this guy started reading, just kept reading, and, and it came alive in a whole new way and confirmed that really we needed to be doing that. So we're going to start with um, the first one tonight. Uh, and we're going to hear, in a moment, we're going to hear, hear kind of the, the actual passage. But I just want to give a bit of introduction first. So many of you remember a few months ago when I came back from the summer, Sarah and I and the family had an incredible opportunity to go to Ephesus, um, which is in modern-day Turkey, and I came back with a few photos. I didn't show all the hundreds of photos I've got, but I was blown away when we went to Ephesus. I mean, you go to some historical places, you know, you go to perhaps a, a villa in England. I remember being taken on a school trip to a villa, and there was a few bricks around, <laughs> you know, I just hope this glorious villa like Roman centurions everywhere as a kind of 10-year-old got real excited and it's just a few lines of bricks in the grass but when you go to Ephesus you've got whole incredible buildings and colonnades and plazas and um, uh, you can actually go into some of the houses with the painted walls 2,000 years old and you can see all this kind of graffiti and beautiful wall paintings and floors and suddenly it comes alive in a whole sort of way so anyway um, I feel like I'm doing a tourist advert for Ephesus but it is an amazing place to go to and in the first century, why it's fascinating to go to Ephesus, this incredible city, in the first century, Ephesus was home to a growing church led by um, the apostle John. John, you remember, was a young disciple of Jesus. Remember, he was a fisherman with his brother James, dad Zebedee, bouncing around out and kind of with the fishing nets. And Jesus comes along and says, follow me. And James and John, they leave the nets, they leave their dad, and they just instantly go and follow Jesus. This is who, who it was. Uh, you can read about that in Matthew 4. Um, and, and John also was the man, remember at the cross, as we just heard in the Easter story, when, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he looks down at his mother Mary, 
and there's John standing there, one of the few who kind of didn't run away, and he says to, says to John, this is Mary, this is now your mother, you know, and, and, and Mary, this is John, your son. Even on the cross, even in absolute pain, he's thinking about his big family and loving them. So John becomes this disciple, he becomes a church planter, and his devotion to Jesus as the true God really offended the Roman Empire. Um, they didn't like it very much. The Roman Empire at the time, remember there was kind of all these gods, all these deities they used to worship, including the emperor, Caesar, who would have been worshipped. And actually this is what leads to John's imprisonment on the Isle of Patmos. Um, we'll show you in a moment a, a, a map where that is. Anyone know where Patmos is? Any ge geographers out there? It's this small little barren rocky island. It's about 50 miles off the coast of Turkey in the Aegean Sea. And he's kind of, he's sent as an exile to this kind of barren outcrop where criminals were sent by the emperor. And he's put there. And while he's kind of in this prison, this prison of his island, he has this incredible vision from Jesus. Jesus appears to him and gives him the message of Revelation, which becomes the final book of the Bible. Um, I've said this before. <laughs> my, my, I have to, are we recording this somewhere? I know Paul Paul has been having trouble with my having had to pull the shirt off the cord. So it's all because I'm going to pretend that this is the beginning of the sermon. Hi, good evening, everyone. It's great to see you all tonight. And uh, we're going to enjoy looking at the book of uh, Revelation. So anyway, <coughs> Mary, nice to hear from you. So um, here's John on the Isle of Patmos. He's been sent there um, because he's a Christian. He's been kind of the emperor. We'll hear more in a minute. The emperor hates him, sends him to Patmos. And while he's there, he has this incredible vision from Jesus. My dad, <laughs> whenever he buys a book, my dad's 89. We were with him at, at Easter. We had a lovely time with him. But whenever, and he, he loves reading books, particularly thrillers. But my dad has this awful habit. And I've seen him do it in airports. I've seen him do it in W.H. Smith. When he buys a book, he'll look at the blurb, inside cover on the back cover, and think, oh, that's interesting. But before he buys it, he'll read about the last five pages. I kid you not. Because he wants to make sure the ending is going to be okay. I was like, that is awful. <laughs> you know, so he always knows who does it. He always knows he's got happier. And if, he, if he's not happy about the ending, he thinks it looks bad. He won't buy it. He'll put it back down. Genuinely, that's what he does. Which is a terrible thing to do. Except that I kind of get it. Read Revelation. It tells you what happens in the end. That is one book. It's a really good idea to go and read the end. If, you know... Go home and read it tonight to make sure you know what's going to happen in the end. Because that's what, that's what Revelation is about. Jesus says to John, I want you to write this down. This is really important. When the book of Revelation is given, John writes down what Jesus tells him. I've already said, you know, the book of Revelation, it's a mystery to some. It's scary. There's imagery. It can be a bit terrifying. It can be a bit fear-provoking, perhaps. There's judgment. There's global catastrophe. Um... There's all sorts of complications and, as I say, imagery of wrath and dis destruction and the four horses of the apocalypse and, you know, all this stuff that often gets turned into films, doesn't it? And we start thinking, you know, is it the World War Three and the sign of the beast and all that sort of stuff? We're not going to get into all of that. There's some great books that we can point you at that, that, that may help in some of that stuff. But perhaps more importantly, or certainly more importantly what I want to think about, it also speaks of and reveals a future time 
of glorious peace, healing transformation, um, and the restoration of all things. And man, we need some good news right now, don't we? <laughs> we need to be thinking. So this is a good thing to read about because this is what is going to happen. It speaks of a new heaven and a new earth with Jesus on his throne and all evil and darkness overcome. No more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. The bridegroom, Jesus, returning in this glorious marriage with the bride, his church, beautiful and spotless and wonderful, speaks of this glory and wonder and peace and for the whole, for the whole of eternity. It's really good news, the book of Revelation. It speaks of the hope that we can have and heaven rejoicing and us rejoicing with all of heaven. So that's Revelation. I'd encourage you to go and read it if you don't know what happens in the end. And it reveals the heart of Jesus in many ways, I think. So there are seven personal letters dictated, if you like, written by Jesus towards seven first century churches found within the borders of what's now modern day Turkey. Are you able to stick that, that picture up for me? Tim? There they are, look. Uh, you can see Patmos, the big red dot in the middle of the Mediterranean. Then you kind of like the Aegean Sea at the top. So you've got Greece, you've got Corinth, then you've got Crete and Cyprus. And so this is kind of what, where that is now is basically Tur uh, Turkey, modern day Turkey. Ephesus, Smyrna, next week Smyrna. Paul Wakefield is going to be speaking on that, um, should have said, next Wednesday night. Uh, Wednesday night, Sunday night. And then Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So we're going we're gonna to reflect on these are seven letters that Jesus dictated to John, directed towards those churches. And the first letter is to the church of Ephesus. As I said, we went there as a family. It was amazing. It was badly hot. It was absolutely roasting. But thousands and thousands of tourists go through Eph Eph Ephesus to buy these, to see these spectacular relics and to buy T-shirts. And you can buy little image images of the goddess um, Artemis, who was worshipped there. Speak more about her in a bit. <coughs> um, from 2,000 years ago. But 2,000 years ago, people went there, in a sense, almost as tourists again. But they came to Ephesus for a whole different reason. They came from every corner of the globe. Ephesus was an incredible place, massive place. It was a world-class city. It was the New York, Paris kind of equivalent. Um, and became centre of the cult worship for Artemis. Artemis was goddess of kind of fertility and life. And there was an enormous temple, a massive temple for her. It was like... Um, Longer, as long and a half again as a kind of football pitch, and as wide as that, had this massive roof. I think it had like 127 marble columns holding this roof up. It was enormous, and it was kind of one of the kind of wonders, seven wonders of the world. And people came from all over the kind of known world to come and worship. And that was the culture in which this church of Christians emerged. It, amazingly, radically culture-challenging group of little Christians who began actually to thrive in the midst of that pagan environment. And then there were leaders like Paul who went there, um, you know, who preached for about six months in the, in the, in the synagogue, um, didn't get very far, and then he went and preached kind of almost like in the public arena for two and a half years, spoke, you know, all day, I think the Bible actually talks about him preaching from kind of 11 in the morning till 4 at night, every night talking about Jesus. And then the Apostle John was there, and Timothy was there, and other kind of leaders, significant leaders. And this is the first letter that Jesus writes to the churches of Asia Minor in Revelation. So we're going to hear 
the reading. Beth's going to come and give the reading. We're going to have a little bit from uh, Revelation chapter 1, just to explain the context of it, and then we'll ask. Thanks very much. And you can watch a pretty video. Yes, I'm reading Revelation 1, 1 to 11. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then at Revelation 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstands from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. so much. So um, you can see from some of these images 
a little bit what the city was there. I think I'm right in saying they, they've uncovered about 10% of what's there. So th it's incredible what's there. But like, you know, about 75, maybe more percent of the city is still kind of hidden under the, the kind of yet to be excavated. It's an incredible, incredible place. Um, if you whack up that just that next image, just it's just an example. You saw it in the video. Um, as the Christians would have walked around in this city, um, this is the kind of thing they would have walked past. This was um, one of the greatest libraries in the world. That's just the kind of front facade of it. That's what's there. It's quite impressive. <laughs> you walk around, you think this is like 2,000 plus years old. It's amazing. Um, because Ephesus was the kind of uh, was a, as an intellectual center. Lots of philosophers, lots of people used to come for debate. There'd be, you know, Greek philosophy. Beca but because people travel from all over the world, there'd be all sorts of philosophies discussed, debated. So, that, that, so Christianity would have had an interest amongst people. They would have been interested to hear what Paul said. A lot of people would have also been massively offended at what he said. But there was a thirst for knowledge and understanding and intellectual debate there. And this was the kind of the front of the, the facade of, of, the, of the library. Just to the right of it, you can just see there's an archway, yeah? Can you see that? That's the archway that, that we walked through, and that you walked through. It was the one of the entrances. I think there were three gates to the massive agora, which is the massive market space uh, where people used to come and do all their business. And written on, you can't see it, obviously you can't see it from this photo, but written over the top of this arch, uh, it, it talks, there's an inscription to Caesar, August, uh, to Augustus Caesar, who is God. That's how he would have been seen in Roman culture. And reminding them, again, of one of the challenges they would have faced. Because they lived in a culture where there weren't just the deities all around them. But the very rulers themselves, the Romans, the Caesar, the emperors, there was a cult of worship for those, uh, for those emperors. And everywhere you went, there were declarations of worship to the one true emperor, God. Uh, and, and that would have been one of the challenges that the Christians would have faced. How do you maintain your... Uh, worship of Jesus as Lord, where you're surrounded by voices on all sides saying you need to worship this. This is who you must worship. Around here as well, in the midst of all this learning and education and worship, there are brothels on all sides and worship and deities and temples to other, other gods. But where all the action really happened was through that archway through in the Agora there. The Agora was the center for trade, for business, for commerce, and, 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 and Ephesus was an enormous center. It was a port center so trade used to come from all across the world spices and textiles and all sorts of things came from all over the world and came into the city and brought incredible wealth and people traveling it was also a land route out for exporting that stuff as well as you went through one of those gates into the agora this is an example of what it had been like for christians to live there there would have been um, some incense burners and as you walked into the temple, the expectation was that you would, under this arch, which was attributed to Caesar, you know, God, who you had to worship, there would be some incense. And you were told that you had to pick up some incense and drop it into the burner as an act of, an act of worship, really, in, in one sense, to an act of loyalty to the emperor, an act of worship and recognition that he was the emperor who claimed to be the Lord. Can you imagine, as a Christian, trying to navigate life in that world where you're living and the whole aspect of, it would be a bit like going into the co-op at the bottom of the hill and every time you go into the co-op, you have to genuflect towards um, a Hindu god or you have to say a prayer to some false deity because if you can't do that, then you can't really go into the co-op to buy your food because people will be watching. 
you'll be known if you wouldn't do that. And, and the Christians are trying to navigate, how do we do life in this city where all around we're being forced, encouraged, coerced, expected to worship other gods and to show our act of loyalty to Caesar and to not do that, we're really risking stuff. How do we navigate that as ones who are devoted to Christ alone? Because to be shut out of the agora, to be shut out of the marketplace means you were shut out of everything. Business, potential, buying resources, wealth, all of those things, commerce, credibility, visibility, influence. You were shut out of all that life. So here in Ephesus, these Christians have to navigate life. They have to navigate the culture they find themselves in. Not just in the marketplace, but because it's a, it's a center of pagan worship. I've already said there were 14 different temples, big temples to different gods. But the really, really big one was to Artemis, this enormous temple to the goddess of fertility. I told you how big it was. And the worship life there affected the whole city really was dedicated. Everybody went to worship at Artemis in this temple, no matter whatever culture you came from. People came from all over the world. And it became such a massive place because not only was it there for worship, but actually it became effectively the headquarters for banking and for money because that's where all the money was exchanged and you got interest and you could get loans. And so if you needed wealth or acquisition to start a business or do what you had to go to Artemis to, to the temple to get money as well. I've already said it was a temple of fertility. That's who Artemis was. So there's all the kind of the prostitution that was there, male and female temple prostitutes, rampant displays of sexuality that would come out in festivals regularly all year round, promiscuity, sexual license. That whole culture was normalized there, not just a few people, but for the whole city. So think of the challenge for those early Christians trying to live in that culture, trying to live lives of holiness, trying to worship Jesus trying to earn a crust, raise a family, live by a set of morals that they've heard from this risen Jesus they're trying to follow. But probably the greatest challenge for them was that additionally they lived under the emperor Domitian who, who, who enforced worship. He was uh, an emperor and that was enforced in this city as well. Very few cities around the region were offered the chance to kind of, um, and given the honor of being a center of worship for the emperor, but actually Ephesus ha was given two. The first one was to Augustus. He was uh, an emperor one bit, one sort of around about first century BC, 100 years before Jesus was born. And there was a temple for him there. But the real challenge for the church was this one to Domitian, who has begun his reign in 81 AD. And he was a real thorn in the side of the Christians. He immediately selected Ephesus as center for his worship. And on, right in the center of Ephesus, up on a hill, there's a massive temple that was erected for him as emperor where people came to worship. And then on the highest point of the temple, up on a platform, he had a statue to himself. I mean, clearly this guy had no ego, did he? He had a 50-foot statue of himself that as you came into the port on a boat, that was the first thing you could see. This was the center of worship for this guy. And it was enforced that you worshipped him. It, was, it would have been incredibly intimidating for Christians because probably after Nero, he was probably the worst emperor, most brutally known to persecuting Christians in the early church. And because the nature of Rome, trying to hold all these people together from all tribes and tongues and nations and cultures, their way of doing that was, well, you all worship the emperor. That brings you together and we will enforce that to happen. Come together, worship the emperor give your allegiance to caesar but also to worship him to acknowledge him as god 
the all-supreme ruler. He, they would have used the word saviour, Lord. So here's Christians who know the true saviour, who know Jesus as Lord, being told they need to acknowledge and show loyalty to Caesar as Lord, as saviour. But there's a problem if you're trying to live as a Christian in a culture that's so different from that. And he particularly was known to um, bring terrible persecution to the Christians who didn't want it. So here's the church in Ephesus. And all this isn't just background. This is really important to understand the context in which these Christians are finding themselves and what Jesus is saying when he's writing to them. They're under incredible, powerful temptation, pressure to simply comply with what's expected of them in that culture. I can't imagine it. You know, the temptation when you're going in to do glory is just to take a bit of incense and just do it so that people don't look sideways at you and think, why, why has that person not done that? Why is he, is he not faithful to Caesar? Is he not worshipping him? It's for this very reason that John got sent to Patmos by the emperor, um, by Domitian. I mean, he got sent there. Early historical records of the early church say that um, he was actually tried to, to kill John. He was, there's stories of him being put into boiling oil, but not dying. Uh, then to find they tried to poison him, but that didn't kill him either. So he gets sent to Patmos as punishment and kind of excluded um, and exiled there. So that would have been all sorts of terrible persecution and suffering they were under. The physical and spiritual atmosphere in Ephesus for those early believers, I think, must have been really tough, really oppressive, really challenging, demonic oppression on all sides. So when Paul wrote to the church in Ephesians 6.11, remember, he wrote this, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but rulers against authorities, powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil. I think they knew what he was talking about. They're like, yeah, we really do have to do this. We are daily engaging in battle at the risk of our lives, potentially. Paul wasn't just simply asking them to take a kind of moral stand against political position or power. His letter to Ephesians is urging them to live a life that's worthy, urging them to continue to take a stand for Jesus against a whole culture that's opposed to them and seemingly opposed to that of Jesus, to what he proclaimed, lives of mercy, selfless love, compassion, forgiveness, honour, submission, sacrificial kindness in this world. He was urging them to, in short, be like Christ in what was really a Christless society around them. And there's a lot of persecution for the church still, isn't there, around the world. And I suspect there will be a lot of persecution increasingly for Christians in this country. There already is, actually. Uh, I'm connected to a Christian um, legal institution that tries to stand up for Christians that are being increasingly persecuted in, in the workplace for having views that are contrary to the culture or for choosing to take a stand against things that others are saying they shouldn't. Persecution perhaps doesn't come in the way of being put into pots of boiling oil, but persecution via mo social media. Persecution by the media at large, persecution in the workplace, exclusion. There's challenges that I think are coming. And what do we do? Do we just put our incense in and think, oh, that's just company? Well, it seems like the church in Ephesus maybe didn't. It's so easy, perhaps, to yield to the idol, the false gods, to just give yourself a sinful life, to submit to the pressure and temptation to just yield here and there, 
to make your life a bit simpler. doesn't really matter. No one's probably watching. In order to try and help your business prospects or your social standing, must have been incredibly tempting for that church in Ephesus to just go, oh, this is too hard. Everything is against us. But interestingly, and I find this really interesting because actually this would have been a hot pot of challenge for the church. Interestingly, Jesus seems to say in his, his, his letter that actually they weren't compromising. That actually they weren't giving up. That actually Jesus commends them for their faithfulness. He goes on to say in the letter, you hate the doctrine, the works of the Nicolaitans. He doesn't say what that is, but basically the Nicolaitans were kind of an early church sect um, that kind of absorbed quite a lot of Greek philosophy and Gnosticism. Some of you may not, Gnosticism, this doesn't really matter too much. But their whole view was, the whole, their whole thinking was that actually what really matters is the soul. The body doesn't really matter too much. So what you do in your body and with your body doesn't really matter. The only important stuff is the, is the inside soulish bit, which kind of meant that you can do what you want. You know, sin isn't a physical thing. It's more about your spiritual number. Um, and actually, the church in Ephesus said, actually, no, sin is sin. Uh, and the church in Ephesus strongly condemned this sort of heretical teaching that would simply say, oh, yeah, we can compromise here and we can compromise there. Because it doesn't really matter. What really matters is what's on the inside and what we really believe. And the, early, the Ephesus church said, no, that's heresy. That's not true. Our sin is what put Jesus on the cross. Our sin we need to own it. And we need to be forgiven for. What's interesting is, as an aside, clearly the church in Ephesus was incredibly successful, not least of all because when Sarah and I went around, we saw the crosses on these buildings all around the city. We saw crosses that had been inscribed into the stonework in many, many, many places. And of course, we know the Roman Empire eventually became the Holy Roman Empire. Christianity did spread at incredible rates. You can read in Acts... Um, they were so effective in mission, the silversmiths in the city of Ephesus, they used to make these little silver statues to Artemis, the god. And clearly the mission of the Christians became so powerful because there was a riot virtually in the city because the silversmiths were so incensed because people stopped buying these little idols because clearly they felt they were being challenged. Actually, we need to yield to Jesus and not to these kind of things. And there was nearly a riot in the city. Clearly the church in Ephesus wasn't compromising. They were willing to take a stand and actually... Their, their mission, their outreach was visible and effective. So Jesus commends them in that letter. You read it for enduring hardship, for persevering, for their patience, for not tolerating false teaching, false doctrine. They were holding the line. Brilliant. And if it had ended there, you'd be like, I want to be this church. But Jesus then says one thing, but one thing I hold against you. You have left your first love. You've forsaken your first love. Different translations put it different ways. But what it means is, kind of in the meaning, it's you, you put aside that thing which is your main priority, your first number one priority, which is to love Jesus, to love me. It was almost as though their faith and the manifestation of their faith had become a duty, a responsibility, something that we needed to earnestly do, being incredibly faithful, but not out of love. It was like doing works without the wonder, or acts without adoration, religion without relationship. They were going through the motions, and they were doing it incredibly faithfully, but it's almost like they'd forgotten why they were doing it. 
And the whole motivating factor for doing it was becoming a sense of duty or religiosity. And Jesus warns them, you know, if you don't change this, you're going to lose your lampstand. What does he mean by that? Well, in essence, he's saying loveless labor, labor without real love for Jesus, love for me, filling your every moment, no matter how earnest or good, you'll end up simply losing everything. The light in the darkness, the power of the church will fade away. And Jesus says, remember, remember your first love. Remember what it was like when you first fell in love. And when everything you did was fired by a flame of passion rather than simply responsibility or duty. And listen, it's really hard because responsibility is a good thing. And doing things sometimes, even though we don't feel like we want to do them, is a really important thing. And sometimes I, as a leader, wish a lot more people would do things even though they didn't want to do them. Because sometimes we live in a culture like, well, I don't think that's, I won't. But we're not really talking about that. Because I know the trouble is with church as a thing, as an institution, is it can increasingly feel like it's just this machine trying to get people to do stuff to keep the machine running. I've often described it like a, a steam train where you just have to keep shoveling coal into the fire to keep it going. And the more you shovel, the faster it goes. But after a while, you forget why you're shoveling coal. And all you do is end up filthy and sooty and sweaty. And you're not even looking out the window anymore. You're just trying to keep the machine on the rails. That is not what we're talking about. But what we are talking about is a life devoted to Jesus who fills us with a passion for mission and witness and lives of holiness that are inspired not by a sense of obligation, I should do it because I'm a Christian, but because you feel the spirit of Jesus in you, motivating you, helping you to, to be holy. Jesus wants for us not just behavior or du duty, he wants relationship. I guess it's a bit like if um, Sarah pop pops out one evening and I look at the kitchen and think to myself, you know what, I can clean this up. I should. And so I start washing up all the pots and pans and I load the dishwasher and I put the dishwasher on and then I unload the dishwasher and I put it all around the cupboards and then I rub down the sides and make everything sparkling clean. And I know you're thinking this is very, very unlikely and you're probably right, but just go with me. It's like me doing all those things and then her coming home and going, wow, Tim, that's amazing. Why have you done this? And I turn to her and say, well, Tonight I realised I'm really dedicated to the institution of marriage. That's why I did it. It would be madness, wouldn't it? What I should do, of course, what I would do is turn to her and say, well, it's no big thing, but I just really love you and I just wanted to do it. And, and I didn't do it to make you love me anymore. I just did it because I love you and, you know, it's normal, isn't it? But sometimes we do things because we're dedica dedicated to the institution of church rather than simply we're in love with Jesus. And I, and I recognize that in my own life. You know, I have to, this is not a job I'm doing. I'm doing this because I love Jesus. And sometimes he needs to remind me of that, which is sad, but we do need to be reminded of what we're in this for. It's because we love Jesus. So, what Jesus wants for us is to love him and to follow him and to serve him because we love him. And he, what does he tell them to do? Well, he tells them to simply repent and do what they first did. So what about us? Where do we need to repent? Where do we need to, to repent of maybe our heart 
And where do we need to go back to doing simply what we first did when we found him? I just want to pause for one moment to ask that question, and then I'm going to finish with one last very short thought. Where might, we need to, where might I need to repent? And where might Jesus be saying to me, Dylan, you've forsaken your first love. Go back to do what you first did. Where might you be asking me to be forgiven for that? remember it when Steph read it out. Um, Jesus says this. He makes a fascinating closing reference. And actually it's a reference that really the people in Ephesus would have resonated with. um, Pointing effectively to this vast temple of, of, of Artemis. He says this to the church right at the end. To those who overcome, I will give the tree of life. Remember that bit at the end you heard? So Artemis, I've said, was the, was the um, goddess of fertility in life, and one of the great symbols of that was in the outer courtyard of this enormous temple. In front of this enormous temple in the courtyard there was an enormous tree, this vast tree, and the tree symbolized life. And so women hoping to become pregnant would come and kneel at this tree, they would pray at this tree, and they would touch this tree hoping to become pregnant. People who wanted good health, who were struggling, or who wanted kind of fullness of life in abundance would come to this tree. This tree became a symbol of and source of hope and fullness of life for all Ephesians. All of, all of the Ephesians would have known across the city. This tree symbolized hope, healing, life, fulfillment, abundance. And if only you could go and grasp it and be in front of it and touch it, those things could come to you. And of course, because it's in the temple and it's part of the worship, the Christians there could not participate in it. I would suggest they probably felt a bit excluded. And maybe, if they're really honest, they might have even felt a bit cheated. Like, we can't do that. We don't get that. We've, we've, because of the choices we've made in life to do this, we're excluded. We're left out from this great opportunity that's available to the rest of the Ephesians. I wonder if you ever feel that as a Christian? Because of the choice I've made in life to follow Jesus, I look at some of my non-Christian friends who, if I'm honest, at times seem to be happier, wealthier, more free than me. Firstly, I would suggest that actually is a lie. (laughs) But sometimes, if we're honest, it can be how we feel. Why do they have that? Why do they get And why is life so chaffing hard for me? And this little voice begins to play in your head. You know what? It's really costly being a Christian. And I wish I got a bit of payback sometimes. Because actually, everyone else around me seems to get get to touch this tree of life. And receive healing and blessing and benefit. And actually, I feel a bit alone and on my own. And excluded from all of that. I felt tonight, maybe it's just one person here. Where maybe, (laughs) you know that phrase? Life can sometimes give you lemons. Oh, no, sure. And then someone says, well, if it does, make lemonade, you know, something really irritating like that. But I felt for someone here tonight, it may feel a bit like life's giving you a bit of lemons at the moment. 
and it's hard not to feel the bitterness of that in your mouth. And you know, because you love Jesus, that he is the way and the truth and life. And you know the truth. You know that he's good and you know that you wouldn't pick any other way. But if you're really honest with yourself, what you feel inside is pain and maybe a bit of frustration or anger or resentment or why can't it be different? There's pain. I suspect for some Ephesians, for a lot of the Ephesian Christians, it might have felt a bit like that. And hey, isn't this the kindness of Jesus? He's commended them for what they've done well, but he's given them a real whack around the chops. <laughs> hey, you're doing really well. You're great. I commend you for this, but you know what? You'd forgotten your first love. I mean, I'm sure that would have been like, oh my gosh. But then Jesus says something so beautiful to those Ephesian Christians at the end. They can't participate in touching the tree like all the rest of the Ephesians. But Jesus says to them, if you stay faithful to me, in the end, I promise you, I won't just let you touch a tree. I'll give you the whole tree of life. The eternal tree of life. It won't be something you just go and touch kind of one afternoon on a wet Tuesday. But you get to heaven. For you, the tree of life. And then he goes on to say this rather strange thing, and it kind of seems a bit odd to us, but he, he says, did you notice that it says, which is in the paradise of God? I mean, that's another weird thing to be in Revelation, what the heck's that talking about? I won't go there. Seems a strange phrase, but you know what's really interesting? The emperors used to have these palatial palace gardens. And in those gardens, they would entertain and only entertain the highest guests of honor. Only the chosen few could go into the gardens. Most citizens would never even get to glimpse them, let alone go into them. And certainly Christians never would ever get anywhere near them. And so for those Christians struggling and oppressed and challenged and feeling excluded and judged by people around them and trying to swim against the flow but feeling like they're drowning and being pushed in the opposite direction on every side under persecution and authorities and tyrants, Jesus saying, a time will come if you simply continue faithfully loving Jesus and you are going to be given yourself the tree of life and be welcome to dwell eternally with him, resting with him. And you know, these emperors had their paradisos, their gardens, but actually I'm going to let you come and abide with me for eternity in my garden. It's a promise. It's a beautiful promise made to the Ephesian church, and it's for us as well. So I, I want to pray for us, and I'm going to invite Joel to come up, and I'm just going to close this in worship. That we could return to our first love, even amidst the challenges and pressures we face, and the increasing pressures in our culture, to just compromise here a little bit, to give a bit of ground there, to step back from challenge or confronting things we see wrong here, to keep, keep, keep silent. But actually, to be like the church in Ephesus, to say, no, I'm going to take a stand for holiness. I'm going to speak out in truth with love. I'm going to risk opposition and persecution for the sake of following Jesus. And I'm going to do it not simply out of obligation or duty, but because the love of Jesus compels me to share the good news and to live a faithful life. And I'm going to do it in the secure knowledge that simply holding on to Jesus and trying to love him as best I can, he, in the end, assures me of the tree of life for all eternity. Jesus, I want to pray for those tonight who are um, 
maybe struggling that phrase kind of giving a, a whole bunch of lemons right now and the bitterness and gall and pain of that sometimes the frustration the irritation the pain of that Jesus I thank you with you you're able to do wonderful miracles and to those who are faithful you will prove yourself to be faithful to those who endure you give great reward Lord, to those who hold on to you, you are faithful and just. And you're kind and you're merciful. And you're just and you're true and you're loving. I pray, Jesus, that as we follow you, Lord, for those who hold on to you, would you reward those, those people in this room tonight who you want to honor for their faithfulness, even through times of challenge and persecution. And sometimes those challenges happen in the workplace and sometimes they happen internally in our own minds where there's a battle going on. Jesus, I pray as Paul writes for the church, may we be strong in you, putting on the full armor to be able to take our stand and after the battle's been waged, to find ourselves standing, held firm in you and on you, Lord. Jesus, you are strong. Just as we begin to worship now, if there's areas in your life you feel like, actually, I just, Jesus, I, I need you to kindle a flame of your first love again. Where things have become a bit done out of duty or obligation, and where I just feel tired. As Jesus appeared in that upper room and breathed on those disciples, he said, peace, peace. Jesus, would you breathe on us? Lord, those who feel dry, like in the valley of dry bones, would you breathe your breath to bring life, resurrection, Lord. Fan into flame the gifts that are in this room, gifts of prophecy and healing and evangelism, entrepreneurialism, people with great minds and creative gifts of artwork and skills in writing, prose and teachers people with a heart to bring healing physically and supernaturally to others, people that have got great wisdom and knowledge and understanding, people that have great insight and gifts of leadership, people with gifts of generosity, people with incredible authority to speak into situations and see them change, the pastors and those here who love effortlessly and wonderfully with great hearts of compassion and, and mercy. Lord, would you fan into flame those gifts again, Lord, where they've become dulled by oppression or fatigue. Would you resurrect us and resurrect your church in and across this city, Lord God, with hearts and eyes set ablaze with love for you, Jesus, I pray. Stir us, Jesus.